Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton explores how the biblical narrative is the story that helps make sense of our stories. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, Micah 6, verse 8, and Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. Please turn to Genesis 1 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. By far one of the most important documents of this past century, you might even say in the history of the world, is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, Almost every single country in the entire world has signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and if you know a bit of your history, you know that this grew out of World War II, out of what we call the Nuremberg Trials. After World War II... SS officers, Third Reich officers, were put on trial in the city of Nuremberg for their crimes against the Jewish people and, of course, for many other crimes that were committed. But here's the thing. Every single one of them, in their defense, they all argued and they justified their actions, saying we were only doing what the laws of our country said that we should do. So we are justified. We are not wrong. But the judges at Nuremberg refused to accept this as a defense and as a justification for their actions because they can't, they said you can't just go slaughtering six million Jews and doing all the other things that you did and say you're just following the laws of your country. The judges said there are laws about what is right and about what is wrong and how we treat other people that supersede, that are over top of all human laws and all human countries. They are universal. And so they rejected that as a defense and as a justification. And then out of all of that, a couple years later, came the document which we know as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Here is how it begins. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. That's the preamble. It moves on a bit longer, and here's Article 1. You've probably heard this before. 
All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And then this document went on to form the basis of about 70 other human rights treaties that have been signed since World War II took place. Now, when we talk about human rights, we want to be clear about what we're talking about here. We mean that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, mark this, simply because they are human. So to make that really clear, we do not believe that human rights are based upon your abilities, your achievements, your skills, your socioeconomic status. We don't believe that human rights are based on any of those things. We don't believe, for instance, that strong people have more of a right to all kinds of things than people with physical disabilities. We don't believe that. We don't believe that rich people should be treated better than poor people. We don't believe that young people should take precedence over the elderly. Human rights literally have nothing to do with abilities, achievements, or skills, or socioeconomic status. Rather, we say all people must be treated with dignity simply because they are human. And we go even farther. We would say this applies to all human beings. It applies to girls and to women as much as it applies to boys and men. We would say it applies to people of all skin colors in all countries of all ethnic backgrounds. It is a universal declaration of human rights. We would go so far as to use the language that human life is sacred. It's sacred. And so that's why, of course, we would condemn, and we do condemn all the time, any act of physical violence against another person because of their religion, their gender, their sexuality, any other thing. We condemn all acts of physical violence against people based on those types of things. In short, we could summarize it just simply saying, all people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect simply because they are human. Do you believe that? I assume there's no controversy up to this point. (laughs) And and if you don't believe it, security, we could (laughs) I'm making me nervous. (laughs) But here's the question, I assuming we all believe it. Here's the question I want to ask you now. Why do you believe it? What is it about a human being that you believe somehow gives them the right to all these types of things. What is it about human beings that makes them special? What is it that makes us more special even than animals, though animals must be treated correctly, but we don't ever have great outcries when we kill mosquitoes or any of those types of things. We say there's something special about human beings, so what is it that you would say is so special about human beings that across all nations, all cultures, all ethnic backgrounds or skin colors or anything like that, it's universal? Because I'm assuming that you believe it. In the series that we're doing right now, we are saying that we all believe a story. We have a story in our minds that we all believe makes the best sense of what it means to be a human being within this giant universe in which we found ourselves. We, we all have some story by which we make sense of this giant story that we found ourselves in. 
And on this topic today, for instance, some people would say uh, there is no God and that human beings are evolved. We've evolved over time. We become conscious. So we're the highest of all evolved creatures. Other people would say, no, we are, there are millions of gods and each of us have been reincarnated many times and we're kind of going up the cycle of reincarnation, hopefully, if we've had good karma and those types of things. And, and if you're moving up from animal to human and then from, in many cultures today, from female to male, eventually you might break out of that cycle and you'll attain nirvana. And of course, other people believe a story, as Christians do, that there is a God who created human beings, that we are the special creation of God. But as we've been saying throughout this series, all these stories can't be true. And so what we're trying to wrestle with on each particular topic is, which of these stories makes the best sense of the giant story that we find ourselves in? And what we're doing is we're comparing and contrasting various stories with the Judeo-Christian story, specifically in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. So here's the question, the particular question I want to ask today, and we're going to work through together. I want to ask, what story makes the best sense of our deeply held belief, and it is deeply held, our deeply held belief that all human beings have value and so deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And what I want to contrast today is probably just the two most common, most popular, the biggest stories within our culture. If we we're in India, we do something different. Uh, if we we're in different parts of history, we do something different. But I thought, let's stick with the most common within Canadian cultures, culture. And those, those two stories would be the Christian story of human rights, because it's the historical story of our country, and then the secular story of human rights. So I'm going to compare and contrast these two things this morning. So let's start then by listening to the Christian story of human rights. And before we actually get into the Christian story of human rights, I, I want to show you something. I'm going to do a little bit of kind of history together. I want to show you something that might be surprising to you because everyone here just said, yes, we believe in human rights. I think we all endorse the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But I actually want to show you what an interesting thing that is, historically speaking. It is a historical fact, this is really not debatable, that our contemporary beliefs about human rights here in Canada arose out of the Judeo-Christian story, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It arose out of the thinking and the values behind the Christian story of human rights. So if you believe in human rights the way we do today, you are really a child of the Christian story. You are an heir of something that has come down to you because this has not always been the case. I'm not saying here, to be clear, <laughs> that Christians have always followed our own story. Absolutely not. Christians have not always followed our story on how people should be treated. And there are many black stains within history. And we want to fully admit those things. And at the same time, make the distinction is there is a Christian story about what human rights is all about. But here's the thing. Even secular historians who care absolutely nothing about Christianity trace our beliefs, our contemporary beliefs about human rights to the Judeo-Christian story and the way it has shaped our culture today. So let me get into this a little bit for you. A few weeks ago, I brought up uh, a very famous and new, a popular historian today named Tom Holland. And I made sure to say it's not the Tom Holland from Spider-Man. Uh, different Tom Holland, if you follow any of that. If you didn't, just let it go. It's all right. Tom Holland is not a Christian, uh, but a very well-known historian and has written a book called Dominion, uh, How the Christian Revolution Changed the World. There's the cover. This book is just blowing up absolutely everywhere right now. But again, he's not a, Christ he's not a Christian. He's not trying to promote Christianity at all, but he is a historian. 
in, and he's looking at the time before Christ and the difference that the uh, Christian story made, especially to Western culture, but also to the world. What he does in this book is parts of it, he documents how before the time of Christ, he shows that all ancient societies, aside from the Jews, did not believe in what we believe today. They viewed human life as cheap and as expendable. And if you know some of your history, you know that this is true. And he specifically points out how babies and women were treated very poorly. Abortion was a common practice in the ancient world, across all cultures, but so was infanticide. Do you know what that is? It's not something you want to hear about, but we're going to get into this for just a moment. It is the practice of killing a baby shortly after it is born, because either the baby has some physical deformities, um, maybe just the parents don't want to have the child, or maybe it's viewed as being weak. And this was done in horrible ways. It was done through drowning, and then the most common way was simply to take the newborn child and to discard it out into the elements so that the, the cold weather or the animals might take care of the job. But listen... There was one reason above all other reasons why ancient societies practiced infanticide. What do you think it was? Why would a baby be discarded? Was it because it had physical deformities? That was not the number one reason, though it was a reason. The number one reason why babies were discarded <coughs> excuse me, was because they were female. Excuse me. It was a gender bias, a gender bias against females because males were viewed as superior. And so a man and a woman wanted to have boys to carry on the family line and be the heir. And so if it was a girl and they didn't, they didn't think they had the resources to raise it, they would discard it. For instance, archaeologists have found a chilling letter. A letter that a husband just wrote to his wife as if it was nothing else, like you might write a text to your wife when maybe you're away from home. And this husband, whose name is Hilarion, he was away from his wife for a while. His wife's name is Elisa. She is raising their baby son back home, and she's pregnant with their second child. And so after warmly greeting his wife in this letter, here's what he writes. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. If you are delivered of a child, if you have the baby, before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. As if this is just another note that you just wrote. Dr. Susan Scrimshaw has shown that infanticide was common in India, China, Japan, Brazil, Africa, and among the Eskimos and indigenous peoples of North America and South America. Historian W.E.H. Leckie writes this, Infanticide was one of the deepest stains on the ancient civilizations. But incredibly, when Christianity was rising, the Christians entirely rejected this practice along with things like abortion. They would not practice infanticide. Not only that, the early Christians would go out and find the abandoned babies and they would raise them as their own children. So what did Christians believe? What was the story about human beings that they believed that so just went against all the cultural norms of ancient societies and completely changed the way that they viewed babies and female babies maybe in more in particular? Well, we'll get into that. 
But one more thing just to add to this. Luke Ferry is another famous philosopher and historian, also not a Christian at all. Here's a book that he wrote uh, called A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living. And just like Tom Holland, he also writes about how the Judeo-Christian story completely changed, made a revolution in the history of our world. And he points this out by showing, again, just like Tom Hall, in many different areas. And one thing he talks about is how the ancient societies did not believe that all people should be treated equally. So you and I, again, I, I made it a given, I assumed, and I think I can assume correctly, that every one of you believe it. But what you need to understand is in the history of the world, they did not believe this. So the bulk of the human race throughout history did not believe what you hold to hold, what you believe so deeply. For instance, people in the ancient societies, when they looked out, they saw the animal kingdom. They did not see equality within the animal kingdom. And so they taught and they believed that some humans, like men, are born to rule, while others, like women and like slaves, are born to be ruled and to obey. Christians, though, went entirely against this saying that all humans are equal and have equal value, and just because you're born of a higher socioeconomic class or something like that, or your gender is male, it does not mean that you should be treated in a better way than others. And so listen to what Luke Ferry writes. He says, this idea of equality may seem self-evident to you and I. You think that's just the way it is. But it was literally unheard of at that time, at the time, and it turned an entire world order upside down. Hence why Tom Holland's book is The Revolution, because the Christian message, the Christian story, literally took a world order and flipped it on its head. It took something that nobody believed at all, flipped it on its head so that now, today, if you hold those views, you are a child of the Christian story in the place in history in which you and I live. Now, we could go on and give all kinds of these kind of examples, because Luke Ferry and uh, Tom Holland, they go on for a long time about this. But what these historians are saying is that our contemporary beliefs about human rights are, are the direct result of the Christian story and the influence that it had, particularly upon the Western world. The Christian story and what it teaches about what a human being is. Because what you believe about a human being and what we are will determine how you think we should treat one another. So let's get to it then. What is this Judeo-Christian story that brought about this complete revolution in history of which you and I are now living in a culture where it used to be totally unheard of, and now we say, that's perfectly normal. What is this story? The Judeo-Christian story begins literally, quite literally, on the first page of the Bible, in the very first verse of the Bible, when it declares that God exists and that God created the heavens and the earth. God creates everything, including human beings. And as we saw over the previous weeks, this creation story differs from so many other creation stories in the ancient world where, for instance, the gods created human beings to, as slaves to work for them because the gods didn't want to have to work. Or, this one you won't like, but we talked about this one, that the gods created women as a punishment against men. Now, imagine if you hold, if that's the view, the story that you have of where human beings came from and who we are. Obviously, if that's the story, then you can endorse slavery and treat slaves however you want because the gods do it. Or you can treat a woman however you want if you're a man and have more power because that's what the gods do. 
If that's the story, then it makes sense that you're not going to have things like equality and dignity and worth. But the Genesis story teaches something very different about what it means to be human. The Genesis story says human beings are of high value. Genesis 1 says that human beings are not created as slaves for God. Not at all. Human beings are created as the kings and queens over God's created world. See, here's the thing about Genesis 1 as we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Genesis 1, get ready for this, is not really about the creation of the universe. Now it is, of course, God created the heavens and the earth. And probably one of the most understated verses or phrases in the whole world that's ever been written is in verse 16 when it talks about God made the sun and the moon and then just this little almost throwaway comment, and the stars. Like, (laughs) what? That's all we get? But that's because Genesis 1, its main concern is not about all the creation of the universe and giving us scientific data for billions of galaxies far away. That's not really the point of it. There's the universe that's created, very little said about that, but then it zeroes in on the earth and how God makes the earth a home for human beings and a, a planet that is habitable for life and fills it with life. But then it zooms in even further so that the heart of Genesis chapter 1 is actually the creation of human beings. Because Genesis 1 is meant to teach us about the story that we find ourselves in. And this is really striking as you look at it. Human beings are at the center of this story of Genesis 1. You can see it, for instance, just in how many words are used to describe each day of creation. So I got a little graph here for you. This is in the original Hebrew, if you were to read it in the original. Day 1, for instance, has 30 words to describe that day of creation. Day 2 has 38 words. And take a wild guess which day human beings were created on, if you don't know already. That's right, day six. So just those graphs should show you something about what the emphasis of Genesis chapter one is. And the emphasis of Genesis chapter one, obviously God creates everything, God exists, creates the world, but the real heart to zero in on is the creation of human beings as the special creation of God. And Genesis one emphasizes that human beings are the kings and queens over creation. And as we learned last week from Scott, that not only are we in relationship with God and with each other, but that we are to be stewards of the home that God has made for us. Just as you take care of your house, and you make sure the place where you live is good, we're to take care of the planet, the home that God has given to us. We have a relationship with God, with each other, and with the earth that God has given to us. So it's not just that we are the highest form of life on planet Earth. The Bible goes much further, and it says there's something about human beings that separates us from all other parts of creation. And that something is that God has made human beings in his image. Here's what we read earlier. Let's just read it again in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And notice this, male and female, he created them. It does not just say male He created him, does it? Male and female, he created them. So just take this in for a moment. The Judeo-Christian story says human beings are a part of creation, 
We're not gods. We are part of creation. But we are not like the animals in one sense. We're like the animals in that we're created. We're creatures. We're not gods. But we are totally unlike the animals and everything else that dwells on planet Earth. We are not ordinary in that sense. Human beings are separate from all the rest of creation because God has made each and every human being in his own image. Every single human being is a little image bearer, a little version of the likeness of the creator himself. So just realize the implications of this. That means there are no ordinary people. There's no such thing as an ordinary person. This room right now is filled with little image bearers of the creator himself. When you walk out the doors today, the people you will see on the street, no matter what state they are in, Every single one of them are little creators in the sense of in the likeness of their creator. Little, you don't want to call them little gods. We're not gods, but they are little likenesses of the creator himself. When you go to work, the people that you work with, those people, every single one of them you meet is an image bearer of God himself. Now you say, wow, they sure don't seem like it. And that's true. As we'll get into the story more, we don't always reflect our creator very well. But listen, just because we don't reflect that image very well, every person is an image bearer nevertheless. Every single person is an image bearer of the creator. It follows then that since God has created human beings in his image, every human being must be treated well. Because listen, to strike at another person in any way, whether through verbal, verbally accosting them or through physical violence, is to, in a way, strike at the creator. That's the, see, see the distinction here? If they're, if they're all little images walking around of the creator and God has said, this, is what, this person is like me, this person reflects me, and we strike at that person, that is in a way to strike at God himself. And that is why the Judeo-Christian story says human life literally, quite literally, is sacred. It's sacred because to, you can do many horrible things to someone, but to murder someone, to take their very life, is to take the life of one who is like God himself, a living, breathing image of the creator. And that's why in the days of Noah, God said these words, whoever sheds the blood of man man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's the link between the image of God and how we treat one another. To strike at someone else and take their life is to strike at God himself. Then the Christian story takes us even up a whole other level because the whole Christian story, of course, is centered on Jesus who is the eternal son of God who becomes a man, takes on human flesh, doesn't become a cow or a horse or a dog or a cat, does not become an animal, becomes a man taking on human flesh. And he comes to rescue us from the way that we have made a mess of what it means to be image bearers. For we've all turned our backs on our creator, as we'll talk about later. We don't image him the way we should, and we brought all kinds of chaos into our world. But Jesus said he was a king who is bringing a new kingdom, who is coming to restore that which has been broken. The image which has been marred or even shattered in us, God has come in Jesus Christ to restore all that. And then if you really want to know what his kingdom is about, you just watch how he treated people. 
Look at how Jesus treats people. He welcomes women into his circle. He cherishes children. He touches the outcast lepers. He teaches that in his kingdom, if you want to follow him, you must love all people, even your enemies. He's very serious about how we are to treat one another. This is what it means to be human, he says. And then Jesus gives his life on the cross that anyone who comes to him to seek his forgiveness, he says, not only will I forgive all the things you've done wrong, I'll begin to restore you and make you, remake you into the human being God always intended you to be so that you will image your creator properly. You will fulfill the purpose for which you were born, which is to know your creator and to image him in ways that make others feel valued and are treat others well. He's beginning that process in each of us as we give him our lives. So to summarize then, you can see how this Judeo-Christian story literally turned the world upside down and changed all the ways that human beings thought about human rights. This story says that God exists, that God created humanity in his image, And because he created human beings in his image, every single person deserves to be treated with dignity and with respect. It's a consistent story and has the grounding to say, this is why you ought to treat others well. So that's the Judeo-Christian story of human rights, the one that was a revolution in our world. Let's contrast that now, the Christian story with human rights, with what I'm going to call the secular story of human rights. Generally speaking, as a society, we have rejected the Christian story as a background, but mark this, we've not rejected the idea of human rights. I mean, that that would be foolish to say. Of course, if you talk to the average person on the street who would say, I'm not religious at all, say, do you believe in human rights? Would you follow the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Of course they will say that. As a society, we still deeply, deeply believe that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and with respect. In fact, we believe it so strongly (laughs) that we as a nation will condemn other nations like North Korea for what we would call human rights violations and impose sanctions on them to try to make them to stop. And of course, there's all kinds of other examples we could give. We will literally go to war with other nations in order to stop human rights violations because we believe still as a society that everyone in all countries, it's a universal declaration of human rights. It's not just our own opinion over here in Canada or something like that or on our West world, it's universal. So we might have rejected the Christian story, but we continue, of course, to hold to human rights. But it's right here, it's very interesting, that many secular thinkers are now saying to us that we have a big problem as a society. Our problem is that our beliefs about human rights really only have a solid foundation if we continue to hold to the Christian story. Because the secular story, these secular thinkers are saying, the secular story doesn't provide a foundation for it. So the best you can do is say, this is what we believe about human rights, but there isn't a foundation for it. There isn't a story that holds it together or that says, you must treat others this way because. You you, you just come to the point where you have to say, this is what we believe and this is what we're going to practice. But there's not a story that gives a foundation for it. Let me show you what these secular thinkers are saying. Think it through. What does the secular story say a human being is? This is obviously the most important thing. 
And of course, the most common secular story would be that we are not the special creation of God. Rather, human beings evolved over time, and like the animals that have survived to this day, we are here to this day because our forefathers were the strong ones who killed the weak ones, and the weak ones all kind of died off, and now here we are as human beings, and we are the most highly evolved species on the planet. But we are not image bearers. We are highly evolved animals, conscious, sentient beings. So if this is the story that explains what a human being is, then what these secular thinkers are saying to us now is, how do we continue to believe in human rights? Because in this story, there is nothing about humans being special, nothing about human life being sacred, except that we just simply say we are. We say we're special, or we say life is sacred, but there's nothing in the story that says that we actually are. So there's an inconsistency going on there that people are saying, well, how do we keep these things together? So listen to this atheist named James Rachels. He writes this, small font, sorry, we'll get through it. Any adequate defense of human dignity would require some conception of human beings as radically different from animals. So if you want to hold to high human dignity, you've got to say we're, we're pretty different from the animals. But, he says, that is precisely what evolutionary theory calls into question. Evolutionary theory makes suspicious of any doctrine, any teaching that sees large gaps of any sort between humans and all other creatures. In other words, we're all basically the same. We've all just evolved. We just evolved a little higher. This being so, he writes, a Darwinian may conclude that a successful defense of human dignity is most unlikely. So here's one secular thinker, not a Christian. He's saying, we want to hold to human rights, but within a Darwinian worldview, he's saying, if there's no God in these types of things, it's very unlikely that we can really prove that human beings are special and should be treated that well, because there's nothing in that story that says that. If the secular story is true, there isn't a lot of reasons why you should believe this. Let's work this out a little bit more. We brought up the Nuremberg trials from World War II. Interestingly, Hitler had a bunch of secretaries throughout World War II, and one of his secretaries wrote a book about all of her interactions and what it was like to be Hitler's secretary. So I'll read you a longer quote from her. She writes this, Sometimes we also had interesting discussions about the church and the development of the human race. Perhaps it's going too far to call them discussions because he would begin explaining his ideas when some question or remark from one of us had set them off and we just listened. He was not a member of any church and thought the Christian religions were outdated, hypocritical institutions that lured people into them. The laws of nature were his religion. He could reconcile his dogma of violence better with nature than with the Christian doctrine of loving your neighbor and your enemy. Then quoting Hitler, Science isn't yet clear about the origins of humanity, he once said. We are probably the highest stage of development of some mammal which developed from reptiles and moved on to human beings, perhaps by the way of the apes. We are a part of creation and children of nature, and the same laws apply to us as to all living creatures. And in nature, the law of the struggle for survival has reigned from the first. Everything incapable of life, everything weak is eliminated. Only mankind, and above all the church, have made it their aim to keep alive the weak, those unfit to live, and people of an inferior kind. And you can guess who he's referring to there. 
Now, I'm assuming that you're appalled by that quote and that you would utterly disagree with Hitler, and that's wonderful. But now here's what I want you to do. In your own mind, how would you argue? If you were in that room with him and you dared to argue with him, how would you argue against him? What would you say? If you tried to argue, hey, we need to protect the weak, he would say, where do you get that idea? It's always been survival of the fittest. If you know some of your World War II history, you know that one of Hitler's great justifications and what he said to the German people on why they were taking over the lands around them is that they, were take, they had too many people and they were growing and food was getting less. We need more land to sustain the German people was one of his justifications for the whole thing. So he would say to you, food and resources are limited. The only way to survive is for the strong to take the, the weak who are drained on society's resources and to remove Remove them from society. We don't want to overpopulate and destroy ourselves. We got to get rid of them. That's what he would say. And so, how would you respond to that? You, you might try to argue, well, listen, just because evolutionary theory says that we are highly evolved animals and only strong survive, what a lot of people will say nowadays is, okay, but we don't have to follow our evolutionary background. We can, we can go above and beyond it. Because of our, our intuitions and our, we're conscious beings, we don't have to act like animals. We can act a different way. We can treat each other well, and we can build a society where every person gets treated really well. That would be true, but I think Hitler would say, that's fine. You're free to build your society however you want, but we're going to build our society differently. And who are you to impose your beliefs on us. Who says your beliefs are the right ones? And you would probably just come back and say, they're not just my beliefs. All people deserve to be treated well. And you double down on this, and he would probably just say, you're infected with Christian thinking. There is no God. There are no laws that all people must follow. It's your personal beliefs, and who are you to impose your personal beliefs and your Western beliefs on me and my people? And you'd have an endless argue with him. So maybe I haven't covered all that. You can think it through. How would you argue with him and tell him quite literally that he is wrong? This is why all these secular thinkers are saying that we have a big problem as a society. It's not me. These are the secular thinkers. They're saying we have a big problem with society because on the one hand, we want to continue to hold to this universal declaration of human rights. All people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, and yet we have rejected the Christian story that gives the very foundation for those beliefs. So listen to one more secular thinker, a very, very influential one, named Richard Rorty. He's a very famous ethicist, a postmodern liberal theorist, and he is an atheist. And here's what he admits. He says, secular liberals like myself are effectively freeloading atheists. We're freeloaders. What does he mean? We continue to rely on the Judeo-Christian legacy of human dignity, despite the fact that we reject the revealed truth that could support that concern. Translation, we want to keep saying we believe in human dignity, and yet we can't really do it. We're freeloaders because we keep borrowing from the Christian story, but we're not actually following it. And our worldview as secular liberals and secular atheists is there's nothing within our story to say people should be treated well. So we're going to keep borrowing from the Christian story even though we've rejected it. So at this present moment in our Canadian society and really in the Western world, we're in an interesting position where we're still living off the heritage of the Christian story that gave us all these things to do with human rights and dignity, but 
the foundation that we built it on, called call a human rights skyscraper, if you will. We built this giant skyscraper of human rights. We built it on the story of the Christian, the Christian Judeo-Christian story. And we're at this interesting position now where we're saying we want the skyscraper, but we don't want the foundation. And we're removing the foundation. So where will it all go? I don't know. We'll find out. But this is what these secular people are saying to us is we need to pay attention to this. How are we going to continue to build a just and good society where people are treated well when we don't have a story that says this is what a human being is and therefore all people should be treated with dignity and respect? And it's the secular liberal people that are struggling to think this through. But let's bring this all to a personal level. Do you believe that all people have value? Do you believe that human life is sacred? Do you believe that all people, regardless of the color of their skin or their ethnic background, their religion, their gender, or anything, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect? Then I would ask you, what story do you think makes the best sense of that belief? Is your belief just your own personal preference? Or do you think it's true for all people and all people should follow it? I think you would say it's the latter. And if all people have to follow it, if it's some sort of law that you think is above and beyond all human beings, then doesn't that maybe point you to the fact that there might be a lawgiver? To one who is saying to you, there is something that is universal. It's not just a personal preference. It's not just how Canadians think or something like that. You would say, no, no, no. If you embrace this deep idea, which I think you do, could it maybe be a clue that the Christian story is right on this one? And if it's right on this one and it makes good sense of the world, could it be right on many other areas? Could the whole Christian story be true? That's what you've got to ponder. But the Christian story says this. It says you were created by God. That you are not an accident. That your life is sacred. And you have a purpose your creator created you on purpose, and the purpose is he wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He has a purpose for what he wants you to do with your time on earth. He wants you to be in relationship with others and do good. And this story goes on to say, though, that all of us, by and large, have rejected our purpose. We don't image the creator very well. And the whole history of the human race is this. We've made a giant mess of things, haven't we? And the violence through history, the way people have been treated, I don't need to tell you the stories, you know them. We made a mess of it, and the Bible's answer to all this, which we'll get into a lot more in the next few weeks, the reason why is that we've turned our back on our Creator, turned our back on our purpose, and instead of being image bearers who show forth God to the world, we are bearers of our own self. We've turned inward. We're bent inward now, and so our own hearts then become wicked, and then we start to use rights as ways to trample on other people, and we take advantage of others, and we don't treat other people well. But the good news of the Bible is that our creator, even though he's been rejected by us, has not rejected us. That he sent Jesus Christ into this world. That God became a man in order to restore that which has been lost. In order to take each of us to forgive us, first of all, through his death on the cross, to provide forgiveness for the way we've treated other people poorly. And then to begin to remake us into the image bearers that we are all meant to be. To fulfill our purpose. And this is what he's gradually doing in all of us as we give our lives to Christ. Is making us more and more like Jesus. 
And Jesus, without exception, you ask just about anybody in the history of the world, he stands out in the whole history as the most loving man who ever lived. And this is the man that God is creating us to be like, to have the character of the man Jesus Christ. So the larger story then tells us, bow the knee to Jesus, say, Jesus, forgive me for the way I've treated other people wrongly because I I don't do it well. I see my heart is wicked. I see I'm self-centered. Come and change me so that I can fulfill the purpose for my existence so I can truly love other people and treat them well. But when I look in my own heart, I see I desperately need a Savior. I can't do this on my own. My heart is desperately wicked. And so the first call of this message then is to bow the knee to Jesus and ask him to save you and to begin to remake you. And then, since all people are made in God's image, the call is, once you've done that, to begin to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the call. And again, Christians have not done this always well throughout history. There's good examples and bad examples. But Jesus, his call is clear. If you're going to follow him, The call is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that means all types of people. Since Christ came for all types of people, we love all types of people, regardless if they agree with us or not. This is why Christians travel all over the globe to start schools in third world countries to bring fresh water into villages and to provide medical services. The history of Christianity is filled with these kind of things. It's because every, every human being is made in the image of God that we care for the weak, that we involve ourselves in things like foster care, adopting children, caring for the elderly, the sick, and the dying. It's why here at Central we run something called Neighborhood Market on Mondays and you can come out if you want to serve in this. And it's basically a free supermarket for anyone who needs food and wants to come in and receive some of this. And mark this, it doesn't matter if they believe what we believe. They could believe anything other than what we believe, and we will still serve them because we believe they are made in the image of God. It's why here at Central we sponsor, so proud of you for this, 150 children through compassion. Children all across the world who are in great need of education and food and and care for them, medical services. And here at Central, 150 kids are sponsored through our church family. It's why we oppose racism, why we oppose sexism, and why we oppose uh, aborting unborn children who are also made in the image of God. It's why we love the boy with Down syndrome. It's why we seek to care for the widow who lost her husband. It's why we seek to help the blind and the deaf to try to make it in a world that, does, that, that is seeing and is hearing. It's why Christians throughout history have devoted themselves to all of these causes to just serve people regardless if those people are Christians or not. The call of Christ, when you give your life to him and his call, It's to say, come follow me, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and then, based on your belief in human rights as people made in the image of God and as a follower of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself and treat all people with dignity, value, and respect. This week, or maybe even as we're talking right now, who is coming to your mind who you need to love better? Who is coming to your mind who maybe you need to go make some things right with because there's tension, there's conflict? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now saying, you've not treated this person as an image bearer, 
and you need to make things right. Or here is someone who is hurting. Here is someone going through a hard time. How can you go and love this person in tangible, practical ways? What is the Spirit saying to you right now? Let's pause for a moment of prayer and let the Spirit speak to our hearts. Spirit of God, speak to us now, I pray, on how we can practically go about this. I'll just pause for a moment and allow you, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and listen to what he's saying. Father, we pray you would have mercy on us and forgive us when we are not loving others the way that we are meant to. Forgive us when we do not treat people as image bearers. We don't see them that way. We view them as uh, our opponents, our enemies, people to, be f- to fight with. Oh, Lord, our, all of us, we say our hearts are too often bent inwards. We are too self-centered. We are... We do wicked things in the way in our thought life and in our actions in the way we treat others. Have mercy, O oh God, on us because of your Son. We thank you for his death on the cross through which we can be forgiven. Jesus, supply your blood to us today that we would be cleansed of the way we've not treated others well. And then would you enable us, enable us to love others well, especially those who don't treat us well. Father, enable us to be people who are not just focused on our own entertainment and our own lives. Help us to look outward to other people, how we can care for them, how we can encourage them, how we can speak a kind word, how we can care for them with physical needs. Father, show each of us what that looks like within our own circles. May we be an influence for good in this world, we pray. Enable us to do this. And we thank you for this great story of you sending your son into this world. We praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.